Hi, Karen. How are you? Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. You know how excited I am to talk to you because we talked for three minutes prior to this or maybe 33. I absolutely love your story. I love everything you stand for. The little bit that I know, you stand for resilience. You stand for hope. You are a passionate person. You have taken whatever pain that you have endured and turned it into a passion project, which I give so much kudos and love and respect to somebody like you. Karen Sherbutt, welcome. Hi, thank you so much. I'm so excited to be here. Um, and, and I wanna thank you for creating this opportunity and this platform that we can chat and we can share some stories and and give some hope out there. Well, thank you. So for those of you who don't know who you are and what you do currently, can you share a little bit about what you're doing today? I can. So I am the um, president, chairman of the board, uh, volunteer CEO, and co-founder of Safe Haven Foundation of Canada. So we are a nonprofit program that provides um, long-term homes and lifelong relationships for girls that would otherwise be calling the streets homes. We've been serving the community. Uh, we've been established 27 year, 26 years, and we've been serving the community. We opened our doors in November of 2000. How come every time, I, and even when I was reading about you, I have all these tears in my eyes because I can't imagine how many lives that you have saved and how many lives that you have touched. Do you have a number on that? Now that's, that's just me being a number person. Do you mm -hmm. have an approximate number of how many women that you have helped or that you help a year? Because I'm sure it's increased, obviously. Well, and you know what? It's increasing through our alumni program, but our homes. So we have a duplex in South Calgary, um, and each side is home to three girls. And then we have live-in house parents. So what our program's really doing, it's the first program of its kind of can in Canada and still is the only program of its kind. So we have live-in house parents, and then we have support teams that work with the girls and their extended family to be able to help these girls heal um, they've been through traumas that no child should ever have to go through. They need to learn how to love and be loved and to heal and to feel safe. Um, they start learning life skills, um, communication. Uh, they have counseling classes. Education is one of our key pillars that they need to be able to be going to school and pursuing their education. Um, and we really created... <laughs> It sounds simple because we duplicate that of a healthy, caring family environment. You've got four kids, a blended family. You know what it's like in terms of just raising our own family, yet alone having three teenagers coming into a home with a host of issues and, and trauma and brokenness. And magic happens. So because our program is so unique, we don't get child welfare, we don't get uh, government funding, our girls live with us until they're ready to move out on their own. So the average time is about two and a half years. It's and not what's a short the age? Term. Sorry, I'm so interested. No, what's the age? I just um, don't keep interrupting as you. Young as they would come to you, like the youngest, and how long would you like keep them and let them sort of cohabitate with their with you guys and with their family, their yeah, little family? It's as young as 14 is, is on intake. Um, and girls typically, so I said, they typically live with us two and a half to three years. Um, and the oldest, I think that we've got living there right now is 22. 
Um, so, you know, these, this is our, our team of individuals. We've got our support coach, coach works with each of the girls and her natural supports out in the community. So for every youth that is living with us, there's six connectors out in the community that our team works with to make sure that we're providing and creating a safe, natural community of family and supports for the girls that as they're ready to move out on their own, they've got their people and they've got that sense of belonging that goes far beyond what we do at Safe Haven Foundation. So we've had almost 100 girls call Safe Haven home since we opened in 2000. Um, and we've been in touch with about 70% of them in terms of from our alumni programs. And we know of no one that has ever returned to homelessness. Oh. So it tells us, right? It tells us that our program works. And there is a throne that says rock star, Karen on the back. You are an angel. You are an angel to these young people because like you said, where would they be right now? It's terrifying to think of where they would be, I'm sure for you, even for myself and in obviously the business that uh, you and I chatted about that I do with investigation. And you have you're changing lives one life at a time. And that is unheard of. And I wonder if I could invite you to tell me what brought you to do this incredible gift that you have. Where, how did it all stem and come into this? Because from what I see, I think you have sort of a marketing background, if I'm correct. But I think it was sort of your childhood that maybe inspired this passion project you think you're a private investigator you're pretty good <laughs> <laughs> fortune teller <laughs> um yeah you know what I um and and you're bang on my background is certainly in marketing and I had done my climb up the career ladder um but prior to that I had I came from a very difficult childhood, a very dysfunctional family, um, where myself and my siblings were exposed to uh, child abuse, to witnessing domestic violence, and alcoholism was rampant and in our home. Um, so I left home, I was a runaway, and I was, I had just turned 16. Um, and I had well, there had been there had been interventions, you know. There had been social services come in, and back then, I mean, God, that's a long time ago when I was sixteen. So, couple of, couple decades ago, yeah, that, yeah, yeah. Things, things are definitely evolving. I don't think fast enough. I've got to be honest with you, and I know you probably feel the same way, which is why you've created this heaven on earth for these for these young ladies and these children. I still consider those children. Um, but, you know, I know in the eyes of the law and in the eyes of the court, it's something different, but you have created this heaven on earth. And I guess, so you ran away, people maybe tried to intervene. It was much different. So what happens next? Well, and you know what, people didn't really intervene back then. What And what, what happened? So that first night when I ran away, I slept in a bus shelter. It was the middle of January in Winnipeg. It was cold, but back then there were heated bus shelters and you ducked down low enough below the wood and you could hide. And, you know, I remember that night, Adrian, and I was like, ah, the police are going to come find me. You know, they're going to take me back. And my father and stepmother are going to say, I'm sorry, this is never going to happen again. Um, and nobody came. And that was when I, that next morning was like, I'm going to be okay. 
I made a decision to run away that night because I was running from stuff that was horrible that I wasn't going to survive. And I knew whatever it was I was running to was far better than what I was running from. And that next day I went to school. School was a, um, a safe place for me, right? It I is for a lot of children, yes. It is. I had, I had an amazing guidance counselor. I spent a lot of time in his office. And I had some friends, a couple key individuals, one in particular who is still my closest girlfriend to this day. And I went and I stayed at their house the next night. And suddenly that family of a mom, a dad, and four kids became plus one. And I was always teased as the plus one. So I was there a lot of time. And when I wasn't there, I stayed at my brother's um, or I stayed at another girlfriend's. And I never, I mean, I became the constant couch surfer. I never wanted to outstay my welcome because what would happen then? Where was I going to go? But I had, and I didn't know it at the time, but what I was doing is I was creating my own community. And what did these people, these other 16-year-old kids like me know? But they knew to love me. They knew to support me. They knew to when to rein me in and how to rein me in because it was I was a rebel then. Of um, I was, oh, there, was, there was one day I was staying at my brother's. Linda, my girlfriend, knew where I was staying that night. Um, and I had been missing school. I had missed 68 history and 68 chemistry classes, I think, or something. So she and her brother showed up at the doorstep the next morning, banging on the door and said, you've got five minutes. You're going to go to school looking like this or you're going to get dressed. And they started picking me up every day and taking me to school. At 16 and 17 years old, this is what they were doing for me. Wow. I was blessed to have some really, really amazing people in my life. Um, And I held down three jobs, two to three jobs. I finished grade 11. I graduated grade 12. um, And then I started out in the work world and went out and started doing the, uh, the career climb. And all the while, my mental health was not good. I was good in putting an act on. I was going to say, because right now you feel to me, even through a screen, like this ray of sunshine, you've got this aura about you that's calm, there's serenity, there's happiness, despite all the obstacles. And that is so phenomenal. So before we go into your workforce years and your mental health, which is so important, and I can't wait to hear, you know, kind of that side of it. What happened with your parents? Because you said something so key to me. You know, so many times people think, you know, well, when I get the perfect friend, when I get the perfect partner, when I get the perfect job, the car, that's going to save me. You know, there's a there's kind of like a really firm thing is, you you know, yes, you surround yourself with these great friends and the plus one family. But really, you had a lot of self-confidence inside of you to do something like that I applaud you really because who can do that Karen but did your parents ever reach out was it ever come home it'll be fine we're sorry or did none of that ever happen at this exact stage like at this at the rebel stage before you graduated high school yeah, no, there was there was none of that. So it was, I mean, my parents uh, divorced when I was two. So my father remarried um, at set when I was seven, and it was um, my father and my stepmother, as as well as um, two other siblings, my older brother and sister. And it was um, 
yeah, it was just, it was bad. It was rife with violence from get-go. And the community, our neighbors, relatives, they knew, but everybody was afraid of Bill. He used to be a football player. He was a big man. And I, I look back on him to this day, I think, if you as an adult were afraid of this man, imagine what myself and my siblings were. We were kids, we were little kids. So there was no um, there was no communication or anything for years and years and years. After counseling, I did um, reach out to my father and we were able to have a conversation and let the past be the past. I didn't wanna dwell into it with him. He did apologize. Um, but I didn't feel I had done so much of my own counseling and deep dive in terms of what I needed to do to heal. I needed to make it about me. And as long as he had peace of mind, I didn't need to go into any more of it. But it was never it was never a rekindled relationship in any way, shape or form. Wow. And would you say because I'm always in the very firm mindset you know, a lot of people think that forgiveness, oh, you got to forgive this person to, you know, forgiveness to me, if done properly, is sort of a selfish act, if you will, because it releases you. Now, did you feel or have you felt that you've ever truly forgiven him? Yeah, you know what I have, and I've forgiven my stepmother, and I've forgiven all the other people that didn't step to the plate when they could have um, because they didn't know better. You know, I'm not ever going to make excuses for, for my father and stepmother, um, but I needed to let go of that. And when I look back on everything I went through, as much as I wouldn't wish it on my worst enemy, Adrian, I wouldn't trade it for anything in the world because who I am now is who I am and I like me and where my life is. I, even when I wished for the best, I never imagined I would be where I am now. So I wouldn't change a thing with it. I love that. That's, again, I'll probably cry off my eyelashes, I'm sure by the end of it, because your story, you know, is so authentic. And I know it's going to resonate with so many people. I mean, prior to the pandemic, I, I don't ever really want to focus on the pandemic because prior to the pandemic, we had such an influx of um, mental health issues and struggles with our youth. And the youth is really, in my humble opinion, and it's just my opinion, um, and I don't discount the adults and seniors, obviously, that have struggled as well, but the pandemic really magnified that. And then you lock up a bunch of um, people that are not happy or people that are being abused, like you said, I know for a fact through the work I do, school is their safe place. And so now you take that away too and homeschool everybody. I can't even imagine. So you kind of get through the pandemic and find fair enough. Do you feel that with your situation after sort of high school, was it almost like, okay, now I'm starting my own life. I can leave that behind me. And now I'm starting again. Or did you feel that in high school? Because I'm just, we're going back now to your story. I'm just curious to see where that shift was for you. Because you've got such a great attitude of every with everything that's happened. You know what? That's a really interesting question. And my, my, my first thought on that is I existed before I was 16. I didn't start living until I ran away. 
that was when my life started. Um, and when I look back at that, that was one of my, that was one of my most defining moments in my life. I didn't know it at the time, but I knew that I was better than what had been beaten into me. I knew I was worthy. I knew I could be somebody. And I spent years proving those people wrong, which wasn't necessarily the healthiest way to do it. And I've learned that I don't need to do that now, but that was a driving force for me to be able to start moving forward. So yeah, that's, that's and when I yeah, and if I was just gonna say, if that's the worst thing you did from everything you've endured, and like you said, you know that you know, kind of validation now comes. You you have to go inside yourself, of course, but to be able to sort of articulate that and be able to move through that at sixteen, seventeen, I just can't imagine. Like you said, you existed, but you really started living life. And I feel like what you said too, you were probably much wiser and more mature above your years because of what you went through, but you also maybe didn't know what you wanted, but you for sure knew what you didn't want. That's that fair. It's one of the biggest lessons that we learn when we've had hardships and people treating us wrong. It's reminders of how we don't want to treat somebody else and we don't some, want somebody else to ever treat us like that again. That is so empowering. And so when you went sort of through, and may I ask, uh, and again, if it's uh, not a question you don't want to discuss, I'm fine with that. Your biological mom, was she ever in the picture? She was absent for a lot of years. Yeah, okay. She would kind of come and go from myself and our, our kid, you know, my brother and sister's life. So we might see her once a year sort of thing. And yeah, she was, she was pretty absent. So that in itself was a challenge because it was, she knew what she was leaving us in. She knew what I was having to deal with, with the man that she left because he had been so abusive to her. Um, but again, you you get over it, right? You find your ways to, you oh. understand everybody is going through their own issues and you can't sit and judge them on it. So, um, so yeah. You were able to find empathy and compassion for people that, I mean, as we, you know, the moment we're born, whether we're born into whichever family, you sort of learn at a young age that these two are my people, or this one person is my person. And to not be able to count on those people, that is really tough. I mean, I by no means had a perfect upbringing, but my parents were present. There was a lot of nonsense that went on, fair enough. But your story is one of sort of extreme. And for you to be able to get through it and rise above it all. And then now you're able to love and give back what you maybe, I gotta say didn't have, because I almost feel like you're looking at the, the girls that you take in, you're remembering when you were 16 years old in that bus shelter. And this is sort of like, okay, this is your bus shelter night one. And then you're taking them through that journey, which is, wow. like. How did we get here? How did you get here? How did I get? Well, I mean, and it, you know, I want to just go back and say one of the things that I was very lucky that I had, um, and I still have, is a big brother. So, you know, he left when he was when he was sixteen. Um, so I would have been twelve. Um, and when I showed up on his doorstep one night, he welcomed me in, and he never turned his back on me. He was twenty one years old, and he was ready to help take care of his little sister. Um, and he, those are the people you know, that make 
things happen and trust you. And I didn't trust adults. I trusted the, the, the younger people in my life. You know, I had a grandma, I have a, I had a grandmother that was amazing. She was 98 years old when she passed. That's she was awesome. my father's mom and couldn't imagine or acknowledge what he had done. Um, so we just didn't talk about that. We just, we, we maintained, a, I had a grandma that loved me and she taught me a lot about what love was about. Um, and those again are the things that just helped propel me forward. That is so amazing because you're sort of not the norm when it comes. And I say this, you know, very, very much in admiration of you, you know, people that have your past, sadly, they don't flourish and become individuals like you so you were sort of you went against the grain of everything and you took the hard road I always say 19 paved highways to sort of negativity and one dirt road uphill to positivity and you took the dirt road which means that you were climbing out of hell obviously whatever you had endured and you climbed that road because you were kind of like just being okay is not going to be okay for me because I'm going to I want more for myself. I want love. I want to be loved. And you wanted to learn that path. So then as you get into, like you said, after high school, do you mind? So you're climbing the corporate ladder. You're in marketing. You did very well from what I understand. Yeah, I was in, you know what I was, I was lucky because people gave me chances. And that's one of the things that spirit of reciprocity that continues to live so deep in me. I was hired my first job out of high school. Um, I was hired. I was supposed to be able to type 80 words a minute. I typed 20. And the two people that interviewed me for the government saw something in me. And I worked my way up and I was in the government. I had um, seven years. I had four different promotions. I left there uh, serving as the executive assistant to the deputy minister and working and leading up the affirmative action program for the government. And then I went into the fashion industry and both in front of the screen and behind the screen, um, ran modeling agency for three years, was a guest host on TV shows, started to get more into my own entrepreneurial spirit and building my marketing company and doing events and promotions, uh, working with hotel chains. And then one day I was doing a presentation and I went in after spending an entire weekend on this presentation for a client. And the client said, we don't even need the presentation. We want to hire you. And I thought, no, wait, that, that doesn't feel right. I just spent two days doing all this. I wasn't used to life being easy. And I wanted challenges because I think that for us to grow, we need to feel uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. And I'm okay. I'm comfortable feeling uncomfortable. And that's why I headed out to Toronto and uh, knew one person and um, landed a great job and then landed another great job and headed up the, uh, the national marketing for one of Canada's largest sharp shopping center developers. And then I met my husband. Oh, okay. And the rest is history. How long have you not been in Toronto? Um, well, 28 years. So I met, um, I met John and John is, is the co-founder. He is um, my steadfast companion who has walked through so much of the world with me. And he is so much of what Safe Haven Foundation is today is because of him. And it was from a conversation that we had in terms of he asked me, he says, what do you wish you would have had as a kid? And I talked about a safe place. 
not just when I was 16, but when I was younger, a safe place where I knew I, where my next meal was coming from, where I didn't have to worry about what it was going to happen by the sound of a door closing was going to determine what was going to happen that night. Um, that I was going to be able to feel safe and loved and work at school and not have to work at jobs. And John looked at me at that point, he said, so like a safe haven. And that's how, that's how it started. We kind of took a napkin out over lunch and we drew out stuff and granted there were some tear stains on it and everything else. But John looked at me and he said, so all we really need to do is raise three quarters of a million dollars, buy some land, build the homes, find some house parents and we're done. And I was like, yeah. <laughs> so You're like, just, uh -huh. you just like that. Yeah, just like you with your business. It was like, here I am 27 years later still. Um, you know, running the company and doing all the things we never imagined it was going to be the amount of work, but we never imagined the amount of rewards either. I was going to say, I'm sure it is incredibly rewarding for you to be able to give others what you so needed and lacked. And let me ask you this. Maybe this is a question that I, I should not ask, but I'm going to ask it anyway, because I'm so curious. How do you, I'm not going to say find the girls, pick the girls, but how are these girls able to come to your haven, safe haven to, you know, sort of live out a few years? And that, you know what we have, so we have our entire programming team, our staff complement is nine individuals here. And because we're more than Haven's Way, we are our alumni program, we have a scholarship program, a rec program, and we're building Haven's Harbor now, which is our newest venture. But so for Haven's Way, we have a program manager that meets with the individuals, they um, were connected to all the different services within Calgary. And when we know of an opening coming up, so an opening for us doesn't happen overnight. These girls are transitioning out. We're preparing them just as we do with our own kids in terms of getting ready for them to move out on their own. It's the same thing that we do with our youth and our program with our girls. So when we know of an opening coming up, um, the referrals start coming in. And those referrals come from existing organizations or they come from teachers and guidance counselors who are some of the frontline runners in, in terms of recognizing a child's change in their behavior and the need for this kind of program. Um, we don't take girls that have child welfare status. And that's, um, these girls are the ones that most often slip through the cracks because they don't have the services and the supports around them, whether they've been through the system and they don't want to be there anymore or they're aging out of the system. And those are the ones that come to us. And the program isn't right for everybody. The girls need to want a family environment. They need to want to be able to have an education, to deal with their mental health, to deal with healing, um, to live in a family structure and be part of something larger than themselves. And it's, it's amazing to watch these girls flourish. And, you know, you had said earlier about um, angels. And I think that our entire programming team and our entire community are the real angels because they're the ones that continually lift these girls up every single day. And, and then the heroes are, are our girls, our youth that we serve. They're these amazing, amazing. Then what does that make you and John? Yeah. Okay, so just saying maybe that, you know, I don't want to use the G word that you guys, you know, are the gods or whatever. But, you know, without people like you and, and your husband, this none of this is possible. And now I see that you are continuing 
to grow because you see that the needs, there's still other needs from what I'm hearing, right? And so can you tell me just quickly about your project that you're working on now? I mean, yeah. it, it looks like there's a few, but the bigger yeah, so project that you were just Haven, talking Haven's Harbor is our newest initiative. Um, and it is, an, we've purchased an apartment building in South Calgary and are in the process of going through renovations. It's going to be home for nine additional youth that have either come through our Haven's Way program or other like-minded programs, and they're not quite ready to live in their own apartment where they don't know anybody. They're going to that next stage of self-sufficiency. So they've got their apartment, they have to pay rent. It's a subsidized rent. They need to be going to, to school, but there's a transition coach that's there with them. Um, we're having a, a community hub which is a place down in the lower level where girls and youth can come and feel like they belong, that everybody is welcome, um, that we may bring a cook in to show their latest specialty, um, or we're having dinners down there with the youth in the program, with our alumni, and really creating this, this hub that's a sense of belonging, and it's part of their home. So the girls there, they'll live with us anywhere from a year to, if they're going through and getting a full degree, it might be four years before they're going out onto uh, into the next, into the real world, I guess. But this is that next and final step that is almost completely on your own, but we're still your safety net. We're still mom and dad in that aspect. I love it. Well, that's how I picture, you know, your whole kind of setup is, you know, you and John are sort of, you know, the grand poobas and you're looking after all these amazing like you said angels although I look at you as an angel I don't get to meet your other uh, staff and your other organizers or coordinators but it feels like it is just all stemming from such a authentic loving supportive place um, for your community, but just for other human beings. And in a world where everybody, I'm sorry, but a lot of people are all about themselves and what they can obtain. And I am so much as you, that's, I think the other thing that sort of resonated with me, it's about the feeling that you get from giving. It's almost, you don't do it to to get that feeling, but I'm sure you feel so good inside seeing these people. I can tell by the smile in your eyes and on your face to see them flourish is the gift. It is the yeah. gift. When, when I can have the honor of going to a graduation and seeing a girl walk across state, the stage or getting a note hearing about a major accomplishment that she's been done, she's done years later, because we still, I still stay in touch with the first girl that ever walked through our homes. And ever oh, I was going to ask that. I'm sure, yes. you know, you're a life changer. You're a game changer. You are somebody that I, again, I don't even want to imagine what these girls and maybe some now women would who, how their lives would turn out if not for you, John and safe Haven. And so my heart and respect goes out to you and your entire team and the community. I hope they're supporting you. I am going to continue to support you as well with anything I can do to bring awareness to what you're doing, because it is so important. And if you, I'm in Toronto, so if anything ever happens in Toronto, I'm your person because it is so important. We have so many youth that are struggling in situations but more so, can I ask a couple of personal questions about you? Of course you can. 
what do you do for you for self-care? Now, it could be something as simple as, I don't know, meditating, working out, you know, four or five times a week, getting your nails done, whatever it is. Do you have sort of, because you must see this, and I don't know if it triggers stuff for you or if it, you know, is you know, sort of all laid to rest. I think we all as as healed as we all are, there's things that sort of still resonate with us and might bring back old feelings, whatever the case may be. So what does Karen do to take care of herself while you're busy taking care of everybody else? I'm, you know what, and I'm embarrassed to say this, not enough. I, and I think, and it's a trait that I think women have we tend to think that we are super women and that we can juggle everything and that there's 30 hours in the day and John will continue to tell me, no, Karen, there's 24. <laughs> um, and I, you and know, what, I, we have to meet him next podcast. Yes, he's pretty amazing. <laughs> you know, it's, um, I've yet to learn how to find the balance. I'm an all and nothing cut or nothing kind of person. So I will go like a banshee. And then on the weekends, if I get a chance, I look at John and we just crash and burn. Um, Or I will go on this sprint of being dedicated and getting up every morning and doing my stretching and doing my workout. And then something happens and it just... It just goes by the wayside. So and the big self-care for John and I is when we go away on holidays and we try to get away a fair bit um, oh so that even if we've got a couple hours that we have to work, the rest of the time is just spent. Just John and I love going for walks and decompressing and we love the ocean and the mountains and all of that. So I was going to say, I hope you're decompressing at that time. And, you know, you said something interesting, and maybe this is something I can sort of nudge you towards, you know, as women, we are taught from a very young age, regardless of our upbringing, and it's, it's society as well, and it's sort of what's expected of us to go, 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 to be the caretaker, to be the taxi driver, to be the teacher, the mom, the this and that, and as wonderful as that is, like you said, there comes a point where either the universe says to you, "Uh uh-uh, you can't do this anymore, your health starts to fail. I really hope that you do get some time to look after you because you are such an important part in our world and in our society. We need more Karens, to be honest with you, because I mean, I just, I, I have so much respect for what you have done and what you continue to do. But, you know, you do have to look after you. I don't know if I sound like your doctor or something. But I want you to try to take care of yourself, too. And, you know, I always talk about mindfulness and meditation. You know, when I started and I live in a I, you and I, I think are sort of cut from the same cloth. And it wasn't till I had a few health scares that I had to take a step back because I always thought mindfulness or meditation was a three hour event, you know, half an hour to the gym, get dressed, do your hour, hour and a half, whatever, no offense to yogis. I, you know, no offense whatsoever. And then driving back, showering, getting ready. I just don't have three hours in a day. And I learned about meditation and mindfulness that it could be done at your desk it could be done like you said going for a five or ten minute walk like walking is so great that to me sort of is my downtime and and what helps me so I love the fact that you and John do that when you're away that's awesome I'm certainly working on it when we're here and I think with with mindfulness the one thing that I do find comfort in is I live in the moment I am 
hugely emotional person. So I just, I love feeling the excitement. And as much as the downers are hard, it's okay because it just builds everything up. And, and I, I'm, I am a huge work in progress and know that if I can find five minutes just to do my stretching, it's better than not doing anything at all. So that. instead of hundred percent might not be what it looks like to somebody else, as long as I'm doing the best I can, given all those circumstances. Exactly. And I love that. I, it's funny because my kids actually taught, they're like, oh, you're such a whip. I'm like a whip. So what you think I'm strict, they think that too, but um, a work in progress. So I, I think we're all works in progress. I think what my next tattoo is going to be, you know, life's a journey, not a destination. And it's sort of what we do. And I know, I know, what's his name, Steve Tyler and Aerosmith own that song, but still it really resonates with me. And I think for you as well, because I don't think we're ever a hundred percent where we need to be. We can always improve, but I love the fact. So you are, you're actually doing the top thing on what I would say would be on sort of a mindful um, lifestyle. And that is number one, being grateful and living in the moment. It people find that so incredibly difficult. And for you to have mastered that, I wonder too, as a young child, if that was something that was part of your sort of shield and your mechanism. I don't know if it's something you learned later in life, but it is so important because we always say, when you think about the past, it can bring up depression. When you think about the future, it's anxiety, but most importantly, you're missing the moment. Like you said, whether it's good, bad, or indifferent, you're missing that moment. And you somehow have learned that. Was that later in life, do you think, or earlier? I, you know what? I, I Again, I think it started to happen when I was 16 because I had been invisible. I needed to be invisible before then. Um, I'm not invisible now. I, I have a voice. I can speak not just for myself, but for people that have gone through what I've gone through and haven't found their voice yet. And I think it just, it, it was part of, it became part of my survival once I left home and it was a good, like, it was just, it's been an incredible journey. I love that because, you know, it takes people a lifetime to get to where you are and to be able to have endured what you endured, gone through what you went through and where you are today. And then to be able to still practice that mindfulness and not get caught up in, I mean, we all have bad days. I don't care who you are everybody has those days right but it seems like you have so mastered what people um and you know leadership number one quality is to to live in the moment and to master mindfulness and so you have done that i am so honored to have been able to talk to you today and to be able to have met you face to face even though it's through a screen i know i'm going to see you soon i'm going to give you a big hug can't wait for that this has been wonderful. Thank you for letting me feel safe enough to be able to share some really vulnerable things. I appreciate you greatly. Absolutely. And thank you. And thank you from all the women and all the girls and everybody who you help and that you your story is going to touch and that you give hope to, and you do give hope and inspiration to everybody. Thank you so much, Karen. Bye-bye. Big hug.